Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the chief critic and executive editor. And Ann Thompson, my usual sparring partner, is taking a personal day today. She's fine. She'll be back next week. But we're going to take a little detour with a special guest this week. We're traveling out to IndieWire's Palm Springs Bureau uh, to talk to Tom Brueggemann, our box office columnist. Tom, how are things out in the desert? Uh, rainy in Southern California, which is happens seasonally. That's good to hear. It's, it's interesting because uh, the the weather, I think, all across the board has been pretty weird now, and these are strange times. But I feel like on some level, it's like when the when the, the entire climate is distorted and we're in this completely unprecedented situation, it just makes things feel even more surreal. And I can't imagine what it must be like out in the, in the environment where you are and the, the landscape already being sort of, you know, having its own unique character. It's stay-at-home weather, which, which sort of fits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. You can work with that. Well, it's great to have you on. The thing that's been so fascinating, I mean, we've obviously talked about it on Screen Talk the last few weeks, but um, we're, this is just such an unprecedented time for people who work in the film business and for the culture of movie going. And for the last several years, your job with us has been every weekend to talk about the box office and how people are going to see movies and the the way that box office figures tell us the direction of the film industry. So I guess just as a starting point, I would ask you is just how weird has the last few weeks felt to you? You know, very strange. I mean, like, like a lot of people, I was structured by days of the week and do certain things certain days of the week and have, have the cycle. So having that cycle disrupted just as a starter, like most people are going through, is very strange. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's staggering because I've been doing this uh, for writing for – you know, eight, nine years now, previously directly with Anne uh, before coming to IndieWire. Uh, and then for decades before that, I was an exhibitor. I was a film buyer where uh, through different means right. you collected grosses over the weekend because Friday was the start of your week. It was the new cycle. By Sunday, you were preparing for the busiest day of the week uh, in theaters, which is Monday when you're booking for the following Friday. So Sunday has always been a think about grosses day. And that's been my life for you know, forever. And to have that changed is, you know, most people don't have jobs where they've done the same thoughts you know, at a certain time for as long as this. So yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it's huge, but it's, it's, it's been very noticeable as it's been since the beginning of this the concerns about this going back to January, that the oversized importance of movies and box office is one aspect of, of the people, a lot of people pay attention to, is really brought home because I think a lot of people feel the absence of that. Just like so many other things, it just doesn't seem normal. Yeah. It's almost like one of those things that you appreciate more when it's gone, right? I mean, it's, it's like the, the anxiety of everybody worrying about an opening weekend number is something that people complain about on a regular basis. And I know there are companies who have said, you know, it was a mistake to start reporting box office grosses because now it always feels like a rat race and there are other metrics for success we should be focused on. But it gives you some sense of regularity and it's a constant reminder that, you know, people do go to the movies and now they don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's so, a, you know, there's that. And there's also the whole thing. Uh, I mean, I've, I've tried to compensate for that myself by doing on Sundays a retro 
top 10 in analysis. And that's partly just for myself because it, it lets me on Saturday create the forms and do the stuff I do otherwise. Uh, but it also, I think, has, you know, it's a pause. So let's take advantage of the pause and look at history and have a little nostalgia and mention some movies that happened in the past. And it's a learning experience for myself because even though I went through all these films, I'm figuring things out that I'd forgotten or didn't know at the time. Uh, but yeah, there's a nostalgic factor, which hopefully comes into play in helping reboot theaters down the line, even though we just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, so let's let's get into that because I think I mean I've been fascinated by your coverage in the sense that we have been in this unprecedented moment, not only in terms of theaters closing down, but in terms of the acceleration of change because we've been speculating about where things might might be headed. The gloomiest prognosticators saying that movie theaters have been dying. There's no way that movie theaters could could really rep be you know sort of represented in whatever the new model for distribution will look like. And other people saying that's not really true. It depends on how you you know sort of formulate what theaters are going to look like in the future, what they could look like. But all of a sudden, you take them out of the equation and. There are so many immediate repercussions. Obviously, the VOD market now suddenly becomes the only way to consume media. And so we're all sort of trying to understand how to measure success there. But maybe the first thing we should look at is just how staggering of an impact on the business is this? Because I think a lot of people are wondering if and when it becomes safe to go to public places again. And we're assuming that that is going to happen how are the movie theaters going to dig themselves out of this ridiculously large hole they're in? Yeah, I mean, that that's the crucial question. And and the key thing you just said right now is the, the speed of the change and how radical it's been. Uh, today is April 10th, a uh, significant date because this was the date that uh, No Time to Die, the Bond film, was going to open up in North America. And the, its date change to, as of now, November uh, started the sense that, wow, things are getting serious. That was 37 days ago, just over five weeks ago. Oh, my God. That seems, that seems like three, four, five months <laughs> back. Uh, and, and everything it feels like happened, years ago. Yeah, I mean, uh, Furious 9 uh, switched uh, to April uh, 20, I think it's 28, 29 days ago. Uh, and everything that's happened since. The shutdown of theaters, the Universal going to VOD uh, uh, three weeks ago, announced earlier that week. Uh, the all the all the things that have happened since then, it's just such a short, short frame of time. So trying to prognosticate about the future when nothing that's happened in the last few weeks we could have imagined three months ago. Is, is is very, very difficult. But it is a, an important and necessary thing because uh, certainly the studios uh, are, are thinking about nonstop. The theaters that are at a, at a disadvantage and, and are, have had much more immediate concerns in terms of, of bailouts and loans and dealing with uh, uh, rents that can't be paid and, and other stuff. But yeah, 
how things reopen uh, is 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 the crucial question, and I don't think anybody knows the answer to that yet. Well, what are you hearing on the on the studio front? Because it seems like we talked about this last week on the podcast. This sense that there really isn't a summer movie season now. We're, we're waiting to see what happens with Cannes, but it doesn't seem like many of the festivals for the next several months are are going to be able to happen. So, we're, at least the fall seems somewhat viable. But just, I mean, if theaters open, say in late August or September or something like that. I mean, how much money are they going to be needing to bring in, you know, in the immediate future to start to come back to some semblance of normalcy or can they ever even do that? Or they, it seems almost like they may have to adjust what their business is in order to have some sort of viable future. Well, the scary thing, I mean, the scariest thing for, for theaters is uh, accumulation of issues they have to deal with. But the scary thing that goes along with it is that they don't control their own fate to a large extent. Uh, it's the, the larger picture of what's happening in the world and what's happening with reopenings, uh, with the idea that this is a business that you really can't get going unless you're sure it's going to continue and not to be interrupted again, which is true of many, many businesses. But, you know, uh, car dealerships or restaurants or, you know, lots of other things can open up and just take a chance. And if they shut down, they shut down. Movie theaters really can't operate like that. Uh, uh, it's it's much more difficult to get because it's going to be so difficult to get the momentum going. And you hear a context. I just was reading uh, uh, online earlier today that the Japanese uh, Olympic Organizing Committee is saying that they may not be able to have an Olympics next summer. Uh, and that, that's just so demoralizing to hear that that and again that's a massive thing they have to be certain that they go before they they commit to it what 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 we do know and i'm, I'm able and this is a no-brainer is that what does come back isn't going to be what was existed a month and a half ago uh the, the idea that that multiple studios release multiple films uh on a regular basis at Know, at, at widest 4,500 theaters in North America, and 90 days later, they begin their home availability. Uh, I don't think that model's going to return. But what's going to replace it? Uh, I don't know now, and maybe we'll have more data a month from now. Uh, but, you know, it, it's uncertain. The key thing today also, apart from that this was when the bomb was going to open up, is today is the debut of Trolls World Tour, uh, for premium VOD, yeah. uh, for rental, not for download, unlike some of the, the recent films that have been available for, for rental as well. Uh, and, you know, going back to getting figures or not getting figures, you know, we're, we'll have some information from, from charts that are provided. I don't think Universal is going to announce anything, although we won't know until what, what we're going to see is what actions they and other studios take based on what they gauge from what happens. And yeah, it- I so I it's fascinating. I mean, I watched Trolls World Tour on a link that was sent to me. It was like a 24-hour link last weekend, last Sunday, uh, and which would have ordinarily been, you know, an all-media screening, right. basically. They had actually started setting up early screenings of Trolls prior to everything closing down and they kept rescheduling and all that kind of stuff. And there was a lot of sort of jockeying to figure out when they could do this. Ultimately, it seemed like the strategy adjusted so that they had 
one timed link for feature consideration and then another timed link for reviews. And that part of it was obviously very strange, you know, sitting in my living room watching this big animated studio movie that hadn't opened yet you could it it did feel a little different but the other thing i was thinking about when i was watching this movie which is very stupid and incredibly entertaining because it's visually dazzling it's got a lot of you know music it covers various genres of music in a way so while it doesn't have the pixar touch it is something where you can see parents watching with their kids and, and having a good time even if they roll their eyes in certain moments this is a movie that I think probably would have performed. Now you can probably advise on this better than I could. I guess the question would have been: Would it would it have been if it's the counter programming to Bond? Would had it have done better, or would it have been sort of you know even keel? I mean, that's an interesting sense of competition. That hypothetical because now it doesn't really have that competition at all. It has a different kind of competition on VOD. Yeah, well, the, the date had been April seventeenth. It only moved to the tenth when the Bond vacated it. Uh, so, so they could open up on, oh, that's a good on, point. on Easter weekend. So that wouldn't have happened. Yeah, it, it, it would have, you know, and they were, they were, they had avoided Mulan, which was March 27th, because otherwise they would have loved to have had the spring vacation, Easter, Passover holiday time uh, for themselves. But they, uh, they avoided Mulan and then they went a week after uh, the bond initially. Uh, but the previous film grossed uh, over, I think it was 135 million domestic, 350 million worldwide, which was surprising. I didn't didn't remember it being that big. Um, and this is not a B film. Uh, this we don't know for sure the budget, but it's reported to have been around 95 to 100 million, a little bit less than the first one. But that's a fairly expensive film. Uh, it's not Mulan, yeah. which is 200 million. Uh, but you know, you're looking at this from, from my, my perspective and trying to figure out what it means. I don't know that it's really, really going to be definitive. People, you know, parents may pay $20 for something to entertain their kids, assuming they're aware of it, which is a whole other question going on about marketing. In yeah. tracking the charts, I have seen that the pros from four years ago has been doing well uh, among rentals so that means there's an awareness and there's only reason it's there is because it's been pushed and parents want to have their kids see it before they see the new one it's not a fair test because you know you can get good bang for the buck if you've got you know parents and two or three kids watching this film that's cheaper than going to a movie to to a theater right. uh, uh so there's sort of a bonus and it gives them something to do that they can feel that you know it's a diversion for a couple of hours is that the same if, you know, a, a normal film, not a breakout blockbuster film, but if a, a, a regular film that is expected to do, you know, decently, uh, would it have the same appeal at the same cost when it's one or two people watching it? So we don't know. Uh, we also don't know right now how much people are beginning to watch their expenditures uh, because of the unemployment and anticipating that we could have tough times yeah. ahead. Uh, and even if maybe people aren't as concerned now, but going down the line, they will be more so when there's. Yeah. You know, right. And, and trolls is, is uh, what? $20 on premium VOD. Yeah. I think that's there. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's a lot of money for this really silly experience when your options are, 
so sophisticated. I mean, you could, if you have a Netflix account, there's a lot of silly kids animation you right. could pull up with your subscription. So it's a real proposition. Whereas you go to the movie theater, you know, it's a good way to entertain your kid for two hours or while you just kind of sit there or something. It's a different kind of category of experience. Yeah. You know, that maybe you, you feel like you're getting your money's worth for that experience. Yeah. So it's the, it doesn't feel like a one-to-one in any way, shape or form. Yeah. And the other thing that I think is really interesting about it is, um, you know, 20 bucks is not that much money if you have a bunch of people watching it. So even if you do decide to watch it, uh, the studio is not getting the same kind of results because uh, you're not getting you're not getting as much money, right? You'd have to right. get way more people to watch the thing to yeah. make it justifiable. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and and and, and it's there are so other le- many other levels to look at it, and and this is a work in progress. The, the Universal films three weeks ago, uh, Invisible Man, Hunt, and Emma were 1999 for 48 hour rental no download some of the films that have have come out since bad boys for life sonic the hedgehog uh birds of prey uh were 1999 plus that included you were able to digitally download the film which is quite off usually the the offering on 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 premium video on demand birds of prey went to regular price on platforms after two weeks the other films mostly have not yet. What's going to happen two, yeah. three weeks down the line with Pro's World Tour? We don't know what the price will be. But if it is cut, I think you're going to have smart consumers. They're going to start thinking, eh, we can wait two, three weeks rather than uh, right. pay the high price. That's all stuff that I'm looking for to, to, to as I check sites daily uh, to see what's what's happening. But again, the larger picture is these are anomalies. There, uh, the, almost all the films that have been released this year, uh, the, the studio films, are now available on VOD, premium, or otherwise. We're, we've run out of those pictures because, you know, studios stopped releasing films. I'm curious, apart from the opportunity involved and the cash flow that the studios are getting from this, and the demands from the platforms, who are their partners like theaters are platforms, we're in a period where you know, premium video on demand usually is something that pops up 75 days after release for a couple of weeks before regular video on demand. Uh, it's a niche market. Mm-hmm. It's been quiet. People don't talk about it all that much, but it's out there. And that market is going to be over unless there's a fresh supply of first run movies. And that's the big question right now. Nobody knows. Yeah. So let, let's get into something else here, because I think this is one of the things that gets lost in these kinds of conversations. And I'm sure you feel this pain on a regular basis is you, Tom Brueggemann, also being a lifelong cinephile, probably don't care that much about a Sonic the Hedgehog type of a success story on VOD if it happens or 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 Trolls World Tour or whatever, because as somebody who cares about the art of cinema, that there's a this sort of a difference between that kind of a conversation and, and the business side of it. And, you know, culturally, you know, what we consider to be great movies and, and how those movies succeed. So one of the things that I think is worth digging into here is, you know, look, never, rarely, sometimes always got its theatrical release interrupted and they decided to make it a VOD release. First Cow got its theatrical release interrupted and A24 decided 
let's just wait and get it in theaters when it can get in theaters because this movie needs to be in theaters. And I think there is this really fascinating question here because there's certainly no shortage of cinematic product is if you were a distributor with a smaller film, an auteur-driven film, does it benefit from this current VOD climate in the sense that everybody's watching stuff at home? Or is it, you know, from both a business standpoint in terms of how these films generally tend to succeed in theaters and from a cultural standpoint in terms of what serves them best as a viewing experience? I mean, what what actually makes sense here? You know, put, put that old exhibitor cap on from this standpoint as somebody who actually cares about these kinds of movies. And what would you what would you think makes the most sense? Well, you know, the weird thing about the timing, the random timing of when this happened, can you imagine how much different things would be if this had happened in November and December and Netflix was coming oh out with Irishman and uh, Marriage Story and uh, the Two Popes and everything else at the high end of stuff at that point? Those would have got. They would have canceled Oscar season, right? I mean, it would just everybody would have tried to just postpone the the show. Well, I'm, but 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 just in terms of of people, you know, reacting to things, you know, it would have been those films as elevated as they were in our circles would have been that much more elevated, and and I think it might have made yeah. it easier for people to get the idea that first run movies, important first run movies, can be seen first whether it's on Netflix or paying for them on premium VOD. Netflix right now is is Tiger King, which is the social, you know, phenomenon and and I think really indicates where where, where Netflix strengths are. Uh one of Netflix strengths are Did you watch it? Tom? Did you did I don't watch animals and, <laughs> No, I, I don't watch I don't watch animals in danger, you know, being abused, uh no matter what the quality. I've never uh, watched it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I couldn't uh, make it uh, past uh, one episode for whatever it's worth. So. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my sense is where I would be as well. Uh but it's you know, but I feel a little bit remiss in doing that because it is relevant and important and it's where things may be headed more. Whereas the films right. that they have, uh, they have Coffee and Kareem. They have they've had Spencer, um, whatever the 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 the, the uh, your confidential, bird, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, the stuff that they have isn't their most compelling stuff. There's a reason the Paris Theater was shut down for remodeling during this period because Netflix didn't have any films that they thought deserved to be shown in theaters, uh, and. So, they have, I mean, they it, have one that is landing this weekend. I, I should single out called Tiger Tail, which I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse that it has a name similar to that Tiger yeah. King thing. Because if somebody watched Tiger Tail, thinking it was Tiger King, they'd they'd probably be very confused since it's you know Alan Yang who who directed a bunch of Masters of None as a co creator. Uh, it's like his sort of semi-fictionalized story of his father from Taiwan. And it's very, you know, Wong Kar Wai slash Edward Yang inspired textured immigrant story. Um, that's a film. And it was shot on, I believe, 16 millimeter. It's uh-huh. a very beautiful, lush drama. I feel like could have had a some measure of a theatrical existence. Yeah. Um, if, if, but, you know. if they were open, they, they, it's a film. It got good reviews today. The, the, the New York Times, LA Times, our both still reviewing uh, films, uh, uh, as are other outlets like us, of course. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's uh, uh, yeah. But Crypt Camp, uh, another significant yeah. film. They would have shown that if they would wanted to, to qualify. Uh, 
that has only showed up one day on their 10 best list and does not seem to be making a big impact at this point, even though it's a film in normal circumstances, might already be considered a front runner for the uh, documentary Oscar. So it's, it's, it's clear. So going back to your initial question, if I had a film right now, you know, it's, I wouldn't want to be one of the first, uh, no, no question about it. I, I, I haven't dug that deeply into never, uh, rarely, uh, sometimes always in terms of its playoff. It has not shown up much in the charts. I did get one off the record indication that it was, uh, modest, but I've not checked with focus yet. So I shouldn't speak to what, and again, the parameters for judging it versus, uh, only the wide release are very unfair to it. They might be doing fine for their right. expectations. Uh, I did notice today that there were small ads in, in both New York and LA Times for it, which is uh, uh, in, in their entertainment sections, uh, uh, which was a change because there's no other ads there at all. And, you know, like there's no ads for Trolls World Tours in the newspapers. It's, I, I wouldn't. I. I it, it, it's going to take some time, and and I think, you know, among the things that have launched movies that aren't going to exist, are festivals. And I'm not sure how you create the interest uh, for a small marketed film without, uh, you know, festivals. You still have the media. You still have newspapers. You still have NUR. You still have places that can spotlight things if they are important uh but no i would i would be wary but at some point that issue may need to be confronted yeah i'm 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 super curious about how viewer habits and and just sort of social behaviors may be evolving right now i mean everybody's learning how to do zoom meetings and i've you know we've done online conversations there have been attempts to replicate events musicians are playing sets that you can tune into and all that kind of stuff. In the past, when we would do virtual stuff, it was very niche. And if and given that that is this sort of temporary normalcy, and it's hard to do anything without some sort of online component right now, I wonder if we will be in a moment where after all of this, it continues in the sense that if you're a film festival you you have to have some sort of robust virtual component in order to build your foundation you know whether that that's just if you can't represent on that level then you can't have an event because that's the business and that's sort of the way that people do things now and a lot of it has to do with getting sponsors and all these these sorts of things that um you know, right now, in, in you know, the normal model has been that you do that with a, a physical event, not with some kind of online thing. So I think it's going to be interesting to see if film festivals can evolve into this space. I mean, Cannes and Venice are saying they're definitely not going to do online components. Thierry Fermeau told me in a story this week, you know, if Cannes is canceled, Cannes is canceled. We're not going to put stuff on your computer screens. So they continue to, you know, romanticize the big screen and they want to have these in-person events. But even... If Can is canceled and comes back next year with a big screen event, I do wonder if they will still need to complement it with more of a virtual presence just because more people are going to want to see that because they've just adjusted to that new standard. I mean, it's just really hard to picture it without that. Yeah, I mean, I, I follow so. you know from from a distance these these days Sundance every year, and you know, and I, I yeah. look at them. I usually do an article a year later. What did what? 
and very few right. dance films uh, make much theatrical impact. Uh, I, I've had some. I, I, I screened for Sundance over a number of years. Had had some other business contacts with them earlier in my career, so I, I know the people there uh, on a level that, that I could talk to them and about things. And I, I, I think it was five six years ago that I I talked to uh, Cooper about you know what about the thought that you should on a selective basis have a complimentary Sundance Film Festival of titles that is pay-per-view while the festival's going on for films that really right. don't have much chance of having the afterlife, you know, and, 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 you know, right. the, the thought always is that you don't want to deny that possibility to those films, uh, uh, right. that most, most sales agents aren't going to want that because you're going to have the sense of, okay, this film has no appeal. Uh, if it, if it, if you go that direction, and, and things haven't yeah. evolved that much since. Uh, but, you know, that's one of the paradigms that may change during this whole period, uh, partially out Yeah, of I've been talking to – yeah, I mean, I've been talking to sales agents who are saying that these virtual festivals are problematic for them. I mean, if you have a smaller festival film that you think could have some sales interest around it – the sense is, well, you can still get it to buyers. So don't do the virtual festival because if you're available online for free or whatever it is for some period of time, that makes it less um, less of an it, worthwhile. But at the same time, festivals in a, in a traditional world provide you with some audience and an initial platform and word of mouth. So if you take that out and it's just people buying stuff and then it, all the onus is on the buyer without that initial word of mouth, it does change the equation somewhat. And I wonder if there will be some kind of an adjustment period where these online premieres do start to make sense for certain films that could use that boost. Also because people are just getting the habit of saying, oh, there's an online film festival, I can watch a movie now. And then they'll watch something small and say this was really good, and the buyer can actually use that information. Right now they think that information would be more valuable after they buy the movie and get it out there. So we're in this really kind of fascinating, ambiguous moment and this also brings up another question that i had for you before we wrap up because i think it's very relevant and that is art houses uh there are so many different scales that we're discussing here but the trolls you know giant blockbuster temple world is not the space that we generally focus on and here in new york i've been saying for the last few years that this really feels like one of the most exciting times for art houses in New York. Now, you were in New York for a long time. You know New York's always been a great movie-going city, but just in terms of the, the options we have, the different flavors from the Metrograph to BAM to Lincoln Center, just all across down Alamo Drafthouse, there's, there are so many different kinds of movie-going experiences in this city. And it was really eye-opening to me a few years ago going to Art House Convergence and hearing from different art house theater owners about their metrics for success, that if you are a single, you know, uh, individual business, you know, just a, a one theater, maybe two screens, whatever it is, your need to succeed your, your, and, and your model is very different from somebody who runs a chain. So there is this real question of, do, do the art houses stand a better chance of bouncing back for this? Because the way in which they succeed is, is going to be so different. And I wonder what you make of that, because that's, that's the other side of the equation that you've been scrutinizing on a regular basis, not the big releases, but how the art house is doing the kind of platform that they create 
across the country for for smaller films. Well, you and I both as people who who are cinephiles and really and we have similar tastes in a lot of the movies from you know watching your reviews and comparing ten best lists. Most of the films that we yeah. love don't you know they aren't from as good a job as they do, they aren't from Searchlight, they aren't from Focus, they aren't from the companies that do provide, you know, the films that 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 headline my my specialized column on Sundays because they've done more business. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's the smaller films, it's the you know subtitled films uh, uh, that you know nothing's like Parasite. That was an exception, uh, and you know the ones that aren't gobbled up by the chains who do end up playing either you know clearing you know get getting the top performers rather than the small art houses or if they do play them they have to play them with them so they're competitive uh so one of the great things about uh these online uh operations that are going on these uh partnerships between some of the smaller companies uh and some of the specialized theaters is that it's possible that they are introducing more challenging films to audiences that might not necessarily be seeing them because they open up smaller and, you know, so much competing with them. Uh, And, you know, maybe, and this is being very optimistic, but maybe one of the things that could happen is that uh, uh, hopefully most of these companies survive, uh, that their films then will, you know, be available to them and get more more play. One of the things that would be terrific, and I've, I've, I've argued for for years, is a more rapid release of films at the same time. You know, we're, we're in the online world where everything is instantaneous. Netflix releases a film, the world sees it the same day. Uh, you know, it might have played in theaters for a few weeks beforehand, but that's, that's what happens. Uh, the, the model that exists is that New York and L.A. open up, and then the you know the smaller the film, usually the more slowly it spreads out across the country. Uh, maybe one of the things that can happen from this model is that, that an online network will, will be set up for marketing, and then these films become available for theaters more simultaneously and uh, have a shot to succeed, and that they alone are playing them. Um, the curation mm-hmm. aspect of specialized film buying is, is, is incredible. And the credibility that theaters have, that people will show up at their theaters and see certain films because it's at that theater and they trust the, the theater for selection. Uh, you can't lose that. And maybe that's something that will grow. Uh, but, you know, again, that's the optimistic view. They've got their own concerns financially to get going, to start up again. And frankly, the model is going to have to be for more of these, and many of them are already, to become nonprofits, to become foundations, yeah. uh, and to uh, uh, operate uh, within the limits of what their audiences is, maybe. But, uh, um, uh, yeah, it's, it, you know, all hope is not lost. Uh, uh, and, yeah. and it's possible well, as as the, the studio model changes that uh, – uh, Maybe those theories become less competitive, uh, and, and a different audience yeah. is built up. 
Well, that could be that could be a, a positive development on some level too. I'm fascinated to see what the next generation of movie going looks like because you have people, you know, college age or, or in high school, they didn't go away. They're still being exposed to the art form and excited about movies and going through an experience like this where whatever happens on the other side, we'll, we will have some sort of altered model or some sort of delay or whatever it is. I think there's going to be an interesting generational story to talk about within the next few years about what that what that kind of moviegoer profile looks like both on the art house level and on the larger scale now tom before we uh wrap for the weekend i want to turn to what you've been watching and and sort of uh paying attention to over over there on sort of on your own time because everybody's got different quarantine viewing lists and so forth and then there's it's it's like impossible to know where to even begin especially if you aren't you know, under assignment to watch stuff, which is my challenge is, is sort of finding that balancing act between what I should be watching and, and what I'd like to make time for. But what's, what's been filling your days in terms of, of, of films that you've been turning to? Well, this is going to be a contrarian response. Uh, I'm a voracious movie watcher. I, you know, work from home. Uh, I, uh, uh, always have watched a lot of movies, too many movies, uh, I multitask, so I'm watching movies while I'm doing other things. One of the impacts of the last few weeks is I've probably watched more movies than I normally do by a, a large margin, uh, mm. sometimes only one a day. Uh, some of it's catching up with stuff. Uh, uh, and I finally caught up with Cats a couple of days ago, which was disappointingly boring <laughs> uh, after all the hype. Uh, it is kind of boring. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, 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 I subscribe to Movie, which I recommend, which is a, a service that is for 30 days. Uh, you know, what you missed uh, if you don't go to Locarno or Berlin or other festivals, films that don't necessarily get, get, get shown here. And, you know, I always have to keep up with them because the films will disappear after 30 days. Uh, and I have seen ridiculous number of, of classic films and, and past films. So there's not as much of that there. Uh, I, you know, I'm trying to frankly catch up with the ongoing acclaimed series that uh, uh, I, I don't stream, don't watch as regularly. And I really haven't started that yet, but that's my priority to a certain extent going forward. Uh, I'm embarrassed uh, to, to admit. Uh, I would recommend to everybody subscribe to the Criterion channel. It's a terrific bargain. It's There is so much there. You'll never catch up. Just plunge in. Go with what's interesting. Uh, I, they now are showing occasional films that I haven't seen before. Uh, the uh, <laughs> a, a, a retrospective has some non-Kurosawas that I, I haven't watched. Yeah. Uh, uh, I So that's what I intend to, to do more of. Uh, what, what have you been watching? I mean, I've been trying to make room on a regular basis for some classic Hollywood in addition to whatever else I'm, I'm sort of I need to watch for, for work. And we have been covering more TV, so I've been seeing more TV things. But on the on my personal viewing side, I've been watching uh, a lot of Hollywood stuff that um, there was a, an online curriculum someone put together that was just sort of an assortment of film, some of which I'd seen before and some of which I couldn't remember if I'd seen because it was probably in, you know, college or something like that. So last night I watched Letter from an un, uh, Unknown Woman and I was just, I was struck by 
just the, the awesomeness of a movie like this being made as long ago as it was, because it's, it's just impossible to imagine a Hollywood movie that is that sophisticated now. Oh, it's a staggering. And that kind of story. Yeah, it's a staggering it masterpiece. And it's just, just visually, as, as you know, that Sunrise, a few other uh, American films uh, from European directors, not coincidentally, are among the, the, the height of, of, of studio filmmaking. Uh, and, and, yeah, it's, you can't imagine that being made. You know, it's such an adult film, and people put down the production code yeah. for what it to movies frankly the production code forced a lot of creativity and a film like that shows that exactly yeah i mean i guess it, it sort of relates to our current moment in the sense that it's like well if you can't do something if you if something seems creatively stifling you just have to find a creative workaround i mean it's it's, it's um you know this movie is basically first two-thirds of it are about a woman stalking a guy who doesn't know she exists. I mean, it's just like, it's like pretty twisted stuff. I mean, you could see why, uh, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson is a big fan, people like that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I just, and I, I love going through these things. I watched um, Suspicion last week and, and had a similar kind of reaction to it. And it's like, this is almost like, you know, it, it sort of anticipates the uh, Adam Sandler character in Uncut Gems or something. It's like one of these just like really kind of subversive characters when you think about, the kind of, you know, what they represent. And even if there are certain things that aren't seen, what's happening off screen becomes something in your mind because of how deep the the storytelling is. So, um, and I think you're right. The Criterion Channel has a great library of stuff, not only in terms of classic Hollywood, but just there's so much that you can find by just sort of venturing around film history and uh, I guess if there's a, a silver lining, I've been using the term silver lining way too much lately. But one silver lining of the situation we're in might be that more people are exploring uh, kinds of uh, cinematic traditions they wouldn't have otherwise. So hopefully that continues when we get to the other side of this. Yeah, and, and, and just to, to wrap um, up from my end, you know, the business side of things is that this is, as you know, in the business side, a very conservative business. Nobody wants to be wrong taking a chance. You can get blamed if something flops and you did things the ways other people do it, then there's far less blame to go than if you take a chance to go in a different sort of release date or a different release pattern uh, and it flops. Then then everybody jumps on you. Uh, this is a very exciting, it's a frightening time, but it's an exciting time from my perspective because you're seeing people really in real time act out what MBA, MBA thesis writers and project doers used to do in theory, in theory. Yeah. everybody's doing that in real time now and uh it's so it's, it's unfortunate it has to happen but it's sort of exciting yeah well thank you for the optimism tom i know that people appreciate hearing that because it's not unfounded either so it's always nice to to have somebody chime in from a knowledgeable point of view and offer that kind of perspective this has been a lot of fun we will have ann back on screen talk next week but we should get you back in the fold more it's always nice to hear from you and uh stay safe out in the desert we'll check in soon my, have a good weekend my pleasure thanks eric